0: All right, friends, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 again this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you remember last week, we looked at verses 9 to 11 together, and we considered how the gospel has gloriously cleansed us from our past and how it is actively transforming our lives for the future. And as we're going to see in just a moment, Paul talks about several sin categories in these verses. Sin categories that if not repented of by a person, Paul says in an absolute sort of way, that person will not inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning that if your life is marked more by these sin categories than by the transforming power of the gospel, then you have real reason to question whether you are truly saved or not. That's what we saw last week. And because of the severity of this statement, and because this is not the only place in this letter that Paul talks about these sin categories, it seemed wise to us as a pastoral team to take some time to talk about a few of these sin categories together. All of them could be considered by us as a church. How are we to think about these things? How is our thinking affected by the world around us? What does it mean to, to, to live in these sins? What does it mean to resist and to repent of these sins? All of this seems important to us, and so what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to consider, from God's Word, just three of these sin categories together. This week, we're going to consider the issue of drunkenness from God's Word. Next week, we're going to consider the issue of homosexuality and gender identity issues from God's Word. And the week after that, we're going to consider the issue of greed within the church today. And then at the end of that time, we'll go back into 1 Corinthians 6 where we will talk about sexual purity in an even broader way in verses 12 to 20. So so we have some very real discussions that are going to happen over the next couple weeks. Hard topics, but important topics to cover as God's people. Let's begin this morning by reading verses 9 to 11 again. Paul says, Or do you not know you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning. Today we are going to discuss the biblical sin category of drunkenness. Now, teaching on the topic of alcohol and drunkenness is not an easy thing to do here at Redeemer, and it's not easy for several reasons. In some churches, there is a greater deal of unity around a topic like this because of the strong and outspoken stance that that church may have taken either for or against the use of alcohol. But because here at Redeemer Fellowship, we have not taken an official stance that tells people that they should or should not drink alcohol, we very likely have people who are in many different places of conviction about alcohol. There are probably people here who think that drinking any alcohol is a sin against God. There are probably people here who feel too much freedom to drink and in their freedom have become careless about their drinking, and there's probably everyone in between as well. And what this means for us this morning is that we need to address this topic very clearly from God's word alone, not from our personal perspectives or, or opinions or emotions. We need to speak to it from God's word and we need to speak to it with both grace and truth. Friends, we need to speak to it with grace because there are those here who have had a past addiction with alcohol or whose family was marked by alcohol abuse or who have lost a loved one due to someone else's drunkenness and for that person, if that is you, this is an emotionally charged topic. You have a lot of personal history that goes into what you think about this topic. And so listen, the very last thing that we want you to do is that we want to do is to speak about this carelessly or in a trite way or in a cavalier way. Please know this morning that that nothing that we are going to to say today or that we're going to see in Scripture today is going to affirm the abuse of alcohol or the actions of those marked by drunkenness. We hope and pray that we can speak about this topic this morning in a very balanced way from God's Word and in a way that's truly helpful and even encouraging to you even despite your history with it. We also need to speak about this topic with biblical truth because there is a great need within the church today to be better informed about this topic. There are some who need to see the allowances of Scripture more fully and there are those who need to hear the warnings of Scripture more loudly. And so this is our prayer, that God would speak both grace and truth to all of us this morning. The main idea for our sermon today is this, Alcohol is a gift from God that we can enjoy with wisdom, but that should never lead to drunkenness. Alcohol is a gift from God that we can enjoy with wisdom, but that should never lead to drunkenness. And so as we consider this, we have three questions to ask. According to God's Word, question number one, are Christians allowed to drink alcohol? According to God's Word, question number two, are are Christians allowed to get drunk? And then according to God's Word, question number three, how are Christians to wisely think about and enjoy alcohol in their lives? Those are our three questions. Let's begin with the first question, number one, are Christians allowed to drink alcohol? Folks, this question has been around for a really long time. Can Christians drink or is it a sin? Is it something strictly forbidden by God? Is the wine and the alcohol of Scripture the same as what we enjoy today, or was it just some watered-down wine or some innocent, unfermented grape juice of that day? Or if it really is wine, if it really is fermented, was it permissible for pleasure, or was it just for medical purposes? Are Christians allowed to drink alcohol? Put very simply and most directly, the answer to that question is yes. Yes. God's people are allowed and perhaps even encouraged to enjoy the gift of alcohol throughout God's word. That seems to be the the consistent and the clear message of Scripture. And folks, we can see that in several ways. We see it first in the words and in the terms of Scripture that speak to and describe the use of alcohol. There are at least nine different terms used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that are used to speak of both wine and strong drink. And listen, while there are several examples of how the wine and the strong drink that these terms speak to can be abused sinfully, for the most part, these words for alcohol are found in places where wine and strong drink are commended and seen even as a blessing from God. In Genesis chapter 14, first book of the Bible, Melchizedek, who is described as a priest of the Most High God, and who we actually learn about in Hebrews chapter 7, prefigures Jesus Christ himself. He is seen in that chapter to bring bread and wine to bless Abraham. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 28, When Isaac is blessing his son, he says, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13, when God is speaking of His chosen people, those through whom He intends to display His great glory and through whom He desires to bless the world, He says, the Lord will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil." There are points in Scripture where God's people are actually encouraged to enjoy the gift of wine and strong drink, and even to make their hearts happy with it. Deuteronomy chapter 14 says, you shall spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. In Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, the experience of God's people of having God's wisdom within their lives is likened, it is compared to the joyful experience of drinking wine. And we we have to ask if God was so opposed to alcohol and wine, would he really use an analogy of it to speak to the effect of his wisdom on our lives? Probably not. In the New Testament, the same word for wine that can make someone drunk, as seen in Ephesians chapter five verse 18, was, is it the same word that speaks of what was created by Jesus at a wedding celebration that he was a part of in John chapter two. In addition to that, one of the most regular accusations brought against Jesus while He was here on Earth was that he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Listen, apparently, Jesus was drinking enough that others felt that they could bring a charge against him of being a drunkard. And it seems that if Jesus is so strongly opposed to alcohol in our lives, that he would have made a clearer distinction in his own life against the use of it. But he didn't. So friends, all, all of these texts and many more seem to strongly affirm the use of alcohol and wine among God's people. E- even many of the Hebrew words which specifically mean strong liquor or fermented drink and clearly have the ability to make drunk, they are seen as gifts from God and as a sign of His blessing. So the argument the argument that says that the wine of the Bible isn't really what we have for alcohol today, that doesn't really hold up when you look at Scripture. Because besides the fact that they would have had no refrigeration in biblical times to keep their grape juice from fermenting, the the words throughout Scripture used for wine and strong drink are clearly alcoholic. They clearly have the ability to make one drunk. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 22, it is weak and watered down wine, which is seen as being as worthless as silver that has been mixed with dross weakened and watered-down wine is not seen as a blessing but as a curse to God's people. Also, the argument that says that wine was just used as a medicine for health reasons doesn't really stand up either because, because so many texts invite us to enjoy and to rejoice in the gift of wine as a celebration. And last time I checked, we're not taking our medicine bottles and cheering one another in celebration. That's not how it works. And so in all of this, we see that wine is allowed and even encouraged by God. Now, the question is why? Why is wine and alcohol so encouraged? Well, we get glimpses of why in several ways throughout our Bibles. First of all, because like all of God's creation everything that we have in our lives. Wine and alcohol can just be a a joyful experience of His grace and His kindness towards us. Like like all of creation, the the thoughtful and the intentional enjoyment of, of wine and of alcohol can even be a worshipful experience of the God who gave these good gifts to us. He could have made it taste like sawdust, but He didn't. He gave us pleasure in these things. Psalm 104 speaks of God's loving kindness and goodness towards us when it says that God enabled us as men to make wine to gladden the hearts of men. It's His doing. But second, we see throughout Scripture that wine and alcohol are given as a sign of God's favor and blessing in our lives and that it is most often enjoyed while we are in a place of stability and rest and celebration of Him together. Deuteronomy chapter 14 speaks to this and how we are to to buy food and drink in order to rejoice in the Lord and in His strength. So, So throughout the Old Testament, there are regularly moments when God's people celebrate who they are in God by enjoying the gift of wine and alcohol. And there is a strong longing for a day when the stability and the security and peace of God would be known in even greater ways. And what will that day look like? There'll be a lot of wine to enjoy on that day as well. Amos chapter 9 verse 13, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall overflow with it. God is reminding us that a day is coming when peace and security will be the experience of God's people more than the trials and the sufferings of this life. In Exodus chapter 7, as the very first miracle that Moses does against Pharaoh and Egypt, Moses turns the water of Egypt into blood. That is a sign of judgment of God's cursing and of death. But in the Gospel of John in the New Testament, as a comparison to what happened in Exodus, the very first miracle that Jesus does for the people of Israel is that He turns the water at the wedding not into blood, but into wine. Not as a sign of judgment and cursing, but as a sign of blessing and grace. When he turns that water into wine at that wedding feast, that's not just a cool trick that he did to entertain. No, it is a powerful sign of the new covenant that has come through Christ. It's a sign of the blessing and the joy and the fullness of the gospel and of the new covenant. John the Baptist, who precedes Christ, did not drink wine. Why? Because he was still looking forward to the one who was to come. But Jesus, our Savior, came and drank wine and also gave us wine. Why? Because He was the one who was to come. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the bread of life, the true vine. Jesus brings the new covenant to His people, even within the sign of the new covenant, which is the table which we will celebrate in a few moments. He gives us wine. So, so are God's people allowed to drink wine? Yes. Why? Because it is a glorious and a beautiful sign of the favor that we have with God through the gospel. In the Old Testament, it was a sign and a foretaste of the favor that was still to come. And now, it is a sign of the favor that has been given through Christ. We're not waiting for our Savior anymore. Amen? We we have that Savior in Jesus. A Savior who spilt His blood so that we would not have to spill ours. A savior who drank the full cup of God's wrath, so that we now can only drink of his rich blessing. And so, we now, every time we enjoy a gift of alcohol in moderation and with wisdom, we enjoy it not for ourselves, but for his glory as a gift from him and a reminder of how rich we are in him. But we can't leave it there, can we? <laughs> Thank you for agreeing. Alcohol is a gift, but it is not a gift without dangers. Throughout human history, our sinfulness has led us to abuse the gift of alcohol, to take what was meant to be a sign of great blessing and turn it into, for many, a sign of weakness, a sign of addiction, a sign of lack of self-control. While it is a blessing... Alcohol is also a great danger, and so we cannot leave the affirmation of Scripture on the table without also adding in the cautions and the warnings of Scripture as well. When I was younger, before I became a pastor, I worked for for five or six years with a land clearer in New Jersey, and we had a great time. We drove really, really big machines, and we used really, really big chainsaws. It was a great job. I loved it. I miss it. But my boss, who was a Christian man, would regularly talk to us about the chainsaws that we were using. He would say, these machines are a gift. Look at all that we can accomplish through these tools. But then he would also speak of the incredible danger that they were at all times. He said that we should never grow comfortable with a chainsaw and that we should always pray for wisdom and skill to know how to use it well, which became painfully clear when my best friend growing up had one go through his boot and through three of his toes. Chainsaws are dangerous, and the same is true of alcohol. It is a gift to be enjoyed, but also a dangerous substance that we need to think carefully about. I recently read a book called The Naked Mind by Annie Grace. It's about finding freedom from alcohol and how to change your life if you are in bondage to alcohol. And her introduction to the book reveals how dangerous alcohol really is. She was, she was an incredibly successful businesswoman, the youngest vice president in a multinational corporation. But what she found was that throughout her success, alcohol had become a problem. At first, it was something that she did just to fit in and to make kind of career connections at her job. But then she found that it was present in every arena of her life. She says this in her introduction. She says, 3.33 a.m. I wake up at the same time every night. I briefly wonder if that is supposed to mean something. Probably not. Probably just a coincidence. I know what's coming and I brace myself. The usual thoughts begin to surface. I try to piece the previous evening together, attempting to count my drinks. I count five glasses of wine and then the memories grow fuzzy. I know I had a few more, but, but I've now lost count. I wonder how anyone can drink so much. I know I can't go on like this. I, I start to worry about my health, be, beginning the well-trodden road of fear and recrimination. What were you thinking? Don't you care about anything, anyone? How will it feel if you end up with cancer? It will serve you right. What about the kids? Can't you stop for the kids? Or Brian, they love you. There's no good reason why, but they do. Why are you so weak, so stupid? If I can just make myself to see the horror of how far I've fallen, maybe I can regain control. Next comes the vows. My promises to myself and to do things differently tomorrow to fix this. Promises I never keep. I'm awake for about an hour. Sometimes I cry. Other times I'm so disgusted that all I feel is anger. Lately, I've been sneaking into the kitchen, drinking more, just enough to shut down my brain, fall back asleep, and stop hurting and what any grace is communicating there is what many of us feel about different areas of sin and for some of us about alcohol in particular sadly too often in the church many see the gift of alcohol and pursue it without sober judgment about what it is and how it is to be enjoyed and they don't consider the danger of it and so they don't enjoy it with sober judgment But church, listen, the Bible gives strong warnings about the danger of alcohol and the pit that it is. Proverbs chapter 20, verse one, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so we must consider the warnings of Scripture as well, which brings us to our second question. Question number two, are Christians allowed to get drunk? Put very simply and most directly, the answer to this question is no. While Scripture makes it very clear that that wine and alcohol are permissible, Scripture is equally clear on the fact that drunkenness is not allowable. It's not. In Genesis chapter 9, Noah is shown to get drunk, and it is a sign that the sinfulness, the fallenness of humanity had continued on even after God's judgment in the flood. In Genesis chapter 19, Lot's daughters sin when they lead him to get drunk with wine. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, a son is stoned to death for being a glutton and a drunkard. In 1 Samuel 25, part of the the foolishness of the man named Nabal was that he was seen to be very drunk. Proverbs 23 instructs the wise not to be among drunkards. Throughout the book of Isaiah and the other prophets, God regularly condemns the nations as those who are drunk and who lack self-control in their lives. Throughout the New Testament, drunkenness is seen in the different lists of vices and condemnable sins, such as 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, and our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says that with the unrepentant adulterers and thieves and swindlers, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says very quickly, clearly, do not be drunk with wine. These texts are not just talking about the desperate alcoholic out there. It's talking about those who, like the world around us, regularly numb their lives through drinking too much. Drunkenness or alcohol abuse is never affirmed and is strongly forbidden in scripture now again the question is why if alcohol is affirmed so clearly as a gift why is drunkenness condemned so severely well scripture gives us several reasons first according to scripture drunkenness is sinful because it is seen as a lack of self-control Self-control is the God-given ability to control how much you enjoy anything that is not God Himself. And self-control is a distinctive mark of Christians, of those who are God's people. It is spoken of in Galatians 5 as a fruit of the Holy Spirit within us. We're able to be controlled by Him and not by anything else. Proverbs chapter 28 says that the the man without self-control is like a city with its walls broken down. Second of all, according to Scripture, drunkenness is sinful because when we're drunk, we blend into the world around us rather than being distinct from the world as we are called to be. You can probably see this most clearly in the book of Ephesians. After beautifully articulating the power of the gospel in our lives, Paul goes into great detail about how the church is to be distinct from the world around us. He says that if we have learned Christ, meaning if you understand the gospel, if you love Jesus for who he is, if you have put off your old self and been raised a new creation in Christ, then he says, speak truth rather than lie. He says we are to be generous rather than steal. He says we are to encourage and build up rather than tear down. He says we are to be pure rather than impure. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, we are to no longer get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. To get drunk is to act like our old selves and to blend into the world around us. James in James chapter 4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 5, listen, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. We are to be distinct from the world and from their drunkenness. Third, according to scripture, drunkenness is sinful because it is is an escape from our circumstances and a pursuit of peace that is not God's peace, but earthly peace. It is an earthly escape. And friends, this is very important to see. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus says, watch yourself lest you your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. Jesus says that the the way to deal with the cares and the burdens of this life is not through drunkenness but through prayerful alertness and dependence on God. Listen, drunkenness is not just a problem for the hardcore alcohol who drinks bottles and bottles every night by himself. No, this is an increasingly severe problem among seemingly normal men and women, seemingly stable men and women, even within the church, who because of pain and sorrow and disappointment in their life are at the bar every night of the week numbing their souls or every weekend or drinking themselves to sleep in the privacy of their homes every night. Night. we're seeking escape i heard a christian commentator speak about the fact that in significant parts of america the life expectancy of the middle class middle class men and women the life expectancy is decreasing rather than increasing Life expectancy is is being lowered, which should never happen in a first world country like ours. But here in America, life expectancy is lowering because men and women are drowning their sorrows away, their disappointments away, their pain away with alcohol and prescription drugs and even hardcore drugs. Drugs and alcohol abuse are huge issues, not just not just for the homeless man on the street corner who is trying to get his next fixed, but for the lonely college student or the middle-class dad or the stay-at-home mom or the company executive woman, for those who can't deal with the pressures of life and who need to find release and comfort some other way, but who are looking in all of the wrong places. Redeemer Fellowship, well, what a picture this is in our culture of the need for the gospel. What a need for the church to to show the world that peace and hope and and contentment does not come from forgetting your problems through, through drinking alcohol or any other substance. No, peace and hope and even joy comes from taking every one of our problems, every one of our burdens, every one of our cares, every one of our many disappointments and turning to King Jesus for help and for the comfort that we so desperately need. Christians are not to get drunk with wine because they are to show that their comfort, their hope, their confidence in life is not in blacking out all those other things, but rather their comfort is found in Jesus and with His people. So much drunkenness. So many eating disorders. So many gambling problems. So many lust issues. So much credit card debt is due to people needing to find peace and hope, needing an escape, but who are looking in all the wrong places. Friends, I actually think that there is a theological application point here for you and I and our our drinking. Drinking in the Bible is to be done when we are celebrating God's goodness to us and when we are aware of His goodness. It's not for when we are feeling sad about our circumstances or burdened by our difficulties. No, when we are feeling sorrow as Christians, that is a time to turn to the Lord in prayer and dependence, not to turn towards drink. When you come home from work and you say, man, I need a drink, that may be the time when you least need a drink and need to spend more time in prayer. Alcohol is a gift, but it must not be where we turn for peace and hope. We must think differently about it than the world does. And so, if God's people are allowed and even encouraged to drink alcohol, but God's word so strongly forbids drunkenness, question number three, how are Christians to wisely think about and enjoy alcohol? This is a significant question, and it is one that we should give time and, and thought prayerfully to. With, with all the warnings of Scripture regarding alcohol, we as a local church must be mindful of how we partake at all, all times. So very briefly this morning, four wisdom categories for Christians as we enjoy the gift of alcohol together. Number one, don't get drunk. Number two, love others. Number three, follow your convictions. And number four, glorify God. Don't get drunk, love others, follow your convictions, and glorify God. First of all, Christians, in godly wisdom, don't get drunk. As we are forbidden from getting drunk, an important question is for us, well, what is it to be drunk? How do we know where that line is? Scripture doesn't give us a clear line, and we all have different capacities for alcohol, so we can't just say, well, two beers and only two beers, or wine and beer in moderation, but no liquor. Scripture doesn't enable us to draw those lines, so what we need to do is consider other guidelines of Scripture. For starters... The Greek word for debauchery, which is oftentimes connected to drunkenness, the Greek word for debauchery means excess. To be drunk seems to be to partake in a way that is beyond what is normal or healthy or balanced. And I think we all have a category for what that is in our lives. Let me say this, sometimes it can be helpful to get an outside perspective on what that is in our lives. Sometimes it's good to ask others whether they see us as being excessive in our drinking or not and what it is that they specifically see about us in that. Whatever they say can be a very helpful guide towards finding out what is drunkenness for you and avoiding it. Another guideline to consider is the loss of discernment the sense of being disconnected from reality. As we said earlier, Christians are to grow in discernment, not be lessened in it. And so we are to be watchful and vigilant as we wait for Christ's return. That requires sober-mindedness, that we know can be lost when we are drunk. The world should see God's people as not disconnecting from reality, but as always being led by the Spirit of God rather than by any other substance in their lives. Christians in godly wisdom, don't get drunk. Let me say this very quickly. If you think about your patterns of drinking and you see that you have a pattern of drunkenness or if you see that you are too dependent on alcohol, let me encourage you to repent today. Let me encourage you not to be condemned, but to to come and speak to somebody quickly today or this week and to ask for accountability and care in that area. Second of all, Christians in godly wisdom love others. One One of the most significant and most appropriate concerns about the use of alcohol within the church is how it affects those around us. Primarily those in our church who are prone to addiction or who, because of their history, have chosen to avoid alcohol because of the harm that they have experienced. If we personally feel freedom to partake in alcohol, one of the most significant responsibilities that we have is to care for and to protect brothers and sisters who don't feel that freedom because of their own struggle with addiction or someone else in their life. Now listen, I do not think that this means that we can't ever drink around those brothers and sisters. I think that if Christians were to be always controlled by the potential weaknesses of those around them, I don't think Jesus would have made such good alcohol at that wedding. He didn't seem to be mindful of every possible person who might be affected by that. So I don't think that it means that we can't ever drink around brothers and sisters who struggle, but it does mean that we care for them as thoroughly as we can and that we be willing to not enjoy alcohol at certain times if it is going to needlessly tempt someone who is in that place. And friends, we're gonna talk about this a lot more in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter eight, Paul says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. There's a love in that that we need to adopt for ourselves. Another way that we can love others is not by judging others who make different decisions than us. Third, Christians in godly wisdom follow their convictions. In Romans chapter 14, Paul speaks to the issue of of different people within the same church who have different levels of conviction. Some feel the freedom to partake. Some do not. And what is very interesting about the text in Romans chapter 14 and even in 1 Corinthians 8 is that Paul both legitimizes and criticizes both places of conviction. First, he says that the person who does not feel the freedom to drink I don't mean to offend, but Paul actually says that that is the weaker brother or sister. They're weaker in that their understanding of the gospel hasn't allowed them to enjoy the gifts that God has given them to enjoy. He actually says that to have a stronger conviction against partaking is not necessarily a sign of spiritual maturity and strength, but of spiritual immaturity and weakness. He says that they're the weaker brother. But listen, he does not say He does not say that that means that they should go against their convictions, therefore. In fact, he says that for the person who feels a conviction against drinking, but because of social pressures, either within their friends or the world around them, goes against those convictions and drinks, Paul says that for them, drinking alcohol is sin. If you do not feel freedom in Christ to drink and you have prayed about that and that is where you are settled before the Lord, please do not hear us saying that you ought to go out and get a beer today. Pray and seek the Lord in regard to that and abide by your your convictions. On the other side of the coin, Paul says that those who do feel freedom to partake should never flaunt their freedom. They shouldn't boast in their freedom in a way that causes those around them who do not have the same freedom to feel weaker or lesser or ultimately to lead them to act against their convictions. He says that it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats or drinks. So Christians, in godly wisdom, follow their personal convictions. And last of all, as we close, Christians, in godly wisdom, they glorify God with their lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 31, I can't wait to preach this text to you. Paul concludes a discussion about these very things that we're discussing today. And he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And his point is, is that if you have convictions against drinking, walk in those convictions not for your own pride's sake, not to appear more godly than others. Walk in those convictions for the glory of God. And if you feel freedom for drinking, walk in that freedom, not for your own popularity, not to fit in, but for the glory of God as the one who gave you that gift. I think this is important. There is a growing culture within the church that appropriately sees alcohol as a gift from God, but but as that culture grows, we can so easily become overly familiar with it and we can lose some of the the God-given purpose behind it. Alcohol is a good gift from God, but if we allow the the coolness factor or the freedom culture to take over and to mark who we are as God's people more than who we are in Jesus, then we are not enjoying His good gifts in any way that is distinct from the world that we live in and not at all in the way that He intends. Even if we don't get drunk, but we always feel like we need to enjoy alcohol to have a good time, then we've probably wandered away from God's intended purpose behind that gift and we are probably not glorifying the giver of that gift as much as we could. Christians, in godly wisdom, we are to be intentional in how we drink, seeing it every time as a gift from God and a celebration of His goodness and grace in our lives and an acknowledgement of the new covenant that has been given to us in the gospel. Redeemer Fellowship, may we hear the the warning of 1 Corinthians 6 and may we seek by God's grace to walk in humble wisdom before him, being self-controlled, always aware of the community of believers that we are a part of and enjoying the good gifts of God fully and wisely unto our King and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray.